Hey, this is the Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else you might find interesting. Your hosts today are Kim Raj and Cliff Brake. We thought it'd be interesting to just kind of think back and, and try to understand how we got to where we're at and how did we get here with respect to the Yo distribution. That's what we're going to try to dig into today. And Kim, maybe you can just start off with a little history on, you, on your, your work in embedded Linux and what set you down this path. Right, yeah. So um, I think I started with um, Embedded Linux um, around 2000s, I think. And um, back then, there were desktop distributions were around, but you know, Embedded Linux was kind of new. And um, there were various companies, actually, that were building Embedded Linux distributions, like companies like MontaVista, uh, WindRiver, TimeSys, and so on. They were using some tools like RPM or custom homegrown tools and and I happened to work for one of them at that point of time. Primarily, I was a compiler engineer. From being a compiler engineer writing backend optimizations, you know, eventually I needed a way to put the full tool chain together. And then I needed a way to put a full kind of a test framework in place so I can run benchmarks and test cases. So, and my focus was embedded systems primarily. So um, I could do it easily on desktops for native x86, but if I have to validate an optimizations on ARM or MIPS, then, you know, I didn't have much out there. So that kind of pulled me in into um, building more than the compiler. And essentially, I ended up building full systems and, and then, you know, distribution. So that was small kind of start to, you know, how I got into the distributions. Was this mostly driven by internal needs or customer projects or what was what was driving a lot of this? So uh, most of it was, um, it's a mix of both. So one of my previous employers, they were a operating system vendor built around embedded Linux. Professionally, that was kind of uh, my requirement at that time. Uh, and I was also doing on personal uh, fronts, I was interested in learning more. Mm -hmm. and uh, learning more about software beyond compilers. And, uh, you know, I, I was very interested to learn about operating systems. And I was uh, looking for ways to compile Linux kernel and debug it, step through it, you know, uh, get the workflow, uh, how the algorithms are working. And, and so those were like other uh, motivations I had. At one point of time, I was looking at writing my own um, a kind of a kernel as well, just for practice. So I think these were kind of motivations that led me in into, you know, uh, basically building systems and, and go from there. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, it's not only me and everyone probably have uh, their own unique story, you know, that got them uh, there. So I'm sure you have your own too. And I would be interested to hear about, you know, what got you here. Yeah, it's interesting to think back. I guess I probably started in the late 90s working for a company that developed, helped develop products for other companies. We were kind of focused on on the early ARM application processors. So that would have been like the digital strong ARM 1100, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And then later, Intel had a PXA 255, I think, and then a PXA 270. Yeah, I might have the numbers wrong, but something like that. So these these were the first real low power application processors that could seriously be considered for running Linux and um, 
low power and handheld applications. So this was kind of a new thing in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So this company did Windows CE development, which was the predominant OS at the time. And then there was also a lot of community interest and then companies starting up doing an embedded Linux as well. So in the early days, you know, there was the Compaq IPAC uh, PDA. So that was kind mm-hmm. of the, one of the first devices that everybody was interested in trying to get Linux running on it. And then, and then we took those efforts and adapted them to products people were building, you know, that had these embedded ARM processors in them and touchscreen displays and, and did things for uh, industrial or other applications. So one of, one of the things that kind of stands out to me over this whole time span of the last 20 years or something is, is really how, you know, an embedded Linux system is more than just the kernel. You know, that's just a piece of it. Building all the libraries and applications that go on top of it is is a big part of the challenge. And that's really, you know, in the, in the early days, somebody would put together a root FS, you know, and we'd kind of hack on that, replace some binaries, but that quickly proved to be unsustainable and, and not something we could easily maintain or modify. Mm-hmm. So from the start, you know, we were kind of always looking for a, a system where we could build all the software from scratch. We could modify things, customize things easily, and kind of build up our own distributions as needed for these projects. You know, they all had unique needs. I guess that's my recollection of yeah. 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think I'll, um, you know, you mentioned about, you know, people taking a pre-existing RootFS and, and building uh, um, their software on top. And that's where actually, you know, some of these uh, uh, embedded uh, OS vendors, especially around embedded Linux, um, offered full systems, which basically they basically gave um, a developer kit, so to speak, to the customers. But these developer environments they offered were basically on top of what they provided them, which is fine if you were to write you know, unmodified, uh, use the platform unmodified and then develop your applications or libraries um, on top of that. Um, But, you know, I remember one of the use cases where one of the customers came back and they said, hey, you know, we we know that you provide us a pre-built OpenSSH. We have a requirement to integrate another algorithm in it. And and therefore, we will need a capability to be able to rebuild it ourselves or how can we achieve it? And uh, they, they were very kind. They said, you know, our product works great. You know, what you give us works very nicely with uh, everything else, but this is a requirement we have. And so how do we deal with it? So the usual way was that, you know, you will open up a professional services department in your company and uh, they will handle these kind of requests. Now, what was happening more in the back of my mind at that point was that, what we what we have today is basically not meeting the upcoming requirements of everyone and the open ssh a simple modification you know to enable a few more um, algorithms in there took months to finish because you know because of the handshakes that were involved and there was no infrastructure so to speak that could be shared between the two, right? And um, essentially the build systems that were developed by the OS vendors were basically um, developed in such a way that, you know, they couldn't be shared so easily across to say your customers. So, because they were feeding into, you know, building these tools 
um, and root FSs that basically combine as a uh, as a customer deliverables in the end. So obviously, you know, many in many cases, people went to this route where they said, okay, we'll use this pre-built RPMs from you, and then we'll have some way, you know, hackish way of taking your tool chain and then building around another build system, you know, kind of a offshoot of it to compile our open SSH or what have you, and then combine it together in the end. So, you know, you might see that as I'm describing it, how difficult it would be to maintain such a system. Yeah. And uh, so that was actually a, a telling difference to me where I said, you know, I've been thinking of, can we have a mechanism where we could speak um, the build system to each other? Right, so we can share basically the the build recipes rather than the build outputs. Mm-hmm. And binary distributions were uh, there, right? Slackware was there, Red Hat was there, Suzy was there. Many of those uh, binary distributions were available. And uh, one thing that you know the binary distributions offered was more standardized policy. And two standard systems like desktops and servers, it fitted really well because. You know, all the systems came with uh, a standard hardware. And, you know, these binary-only distributions made a lot more sense for these. But then uh, for the embedded space, that was not the case because, you know, hardware uh, were different in many cases, customized. So obviously taking, you know, those technologies together wasn't kind of fitting well. And there was some new invention needed to be um, uh, to be there for us to be able to cater to those requirements. So, so I think what you just mentioned, you know, exactly uh, where people were trying to fit in into these smaller systems, and then you know you were looking at building everything from scratch, actually was a, a need that I was sensing from the other side while I was kind of working at an OSB, and and so I had my take at. Uh, Gen 2, you know, um, back in those days, I tried to build, basically uh, use a Gen 2 desktop myself. And and so I was trying to build things from source and trying to see, assess how difficult would it be if I were to give you a mechanism that you can then execute on your system and build uh, the artifacts from source. So I think it was interesting times at that uh, moment. So you know, there were build root was there, UCLibc. Basically, build root, build root was put together to package and deliver uh, BusyBox and UCLibc, essentially, right? And it grew from there. And obviously, at that point of time, if you were to do something like a palm top or a LCD display device, which is a little bit more complex with graphics and all, then you didn't have everything in there, um, you know, there were various things that people were putting together. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, in your experience, you would have had similar experiences and, you know, your share of uh, developments back in those days. So how was it when, you know, you were doing the Windows CE development and then the transition from there to middle Linux and uh, obviously talked about, you know, the changes that you were seeing, uh, but then, what was the next step that you experienced um, after that? How things started to change? Yeah, so you know we were working on on these PDAs back in the day. The you know the Compaq and then the Sharp Zaris came out, and everyone was kind of interested in that. And, and and about that time, 
a developer named Chris Larson started a build system called Open Embedded. And, and Open Embedded was, was like the first true build system for, for embedded Linux that I used that could build everything from source and cross-compile on an x86, x86 machine for other architectures such as ARM. And this was very, very important because when you're doing embedded systems, you need to be, you need to be able to build, build everything for several reasons. One is, is you, you might need to change it, like you already mentioned with your OpenSSH example. The other thing is some of the system may be GPL licensed and you're required by license to provide the source code. So how do you really know if you even have it unless you can compile it and build it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and just if you're using a binary distribution, you know, there's, there's pieces that you, you don't have control over. So, you know, to build these, these embedded products, it just seemed, seemed like a great thing to have a build system where you start it off with one command and it builds the entire system with very few dependencies. So, so this immediately attracted a lot of interest and, and a lot of developers, and I'm sure you came on pretty quickly. Um, right. And really, that's kind of been the basis of all, all of my embedded Linux development since then is the open embedded build system, which has evolved and changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What, about what time did you get involved in open embedded? Yeah, so I think I started, um, so around 2006, I started to kind of play with it a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I had, I had one of those Zoruses and, you know, I said, you know, can I put my own ROM on it? And so you know, it was more like my hobby project more than anything. So, um, so that's where, you know, I got kind of, I bumped into Open Embedded and I said, oh yeah, this would be something that, you know, I can create my own ROM and, um, you know, flash it there. And so that was kind of my first foray into it. And mm-hmm. I learned quickly that, um, you know, remember I mentioned about the OpenSSH case and this was kind of running in my, uh, in my brain as a background thread, so to speak, that uh, could there be a better system? And this seemed to fit in that bill as well. And um, so I remember going to uh, my VP of software and saying that, hey, you know, uh, we know that we've been uh, using this, our home built um, build system for a long time and, you know, it's working well, but uh, there is this thing called Open Embedded. It has a task executor called BitBake and what it can do is it can build things from source. And not only that, but basically I could, just hand the build system to someone and uh, they can build whatever I'm building. So I'm not really transacting with them with, you know, binaries that I produce, but rather with the source. So, but, you know, it was kind of not taken very seriously, you know, because I think obviously it's a, it's a new thing from a business model perspective. And so uh, eventually I know that, you know, most of those OSBs, they started using Open Embedded, but uh, I still remember that conversation. And, you know, it was kind of my excitement more than anything else at that point of time. Yeah. And uh, I tried to um, then work through, um, one of the things that I tried was, you know, there was QNU support. So I said, you know, can I use... Again, it went back to my compiler thing. So I said that, can I create a project that I, then I can showcase to my uh, VP and then buy in some of the credibility of the project? And I started doing uh, a project uh, on my own, basically, to take um, 
the QMU and uh, trying to basically bring up a, a root file system on it and uh, trying to show that, hey, now I can connect um, from my host to the QMU, uh, which is running ARM, uh, simulating ARM code rather, and then I can step through the kernel. And this was actually serving two purposes. One was that I wanted to learn about the kernel itself. And secondly, you know, it would also be kind of a uh, proof of concept that I could show. Um, so that's, you know, how I kind of then started looking into it. And then obviously, I think one of the areas that the project required to be filled in was uh, the toolchain area. And that was my kind of, um, you know, initial contribution into the project were um, around toolchain areas. And toolchain is so essential, so central to, you know, any build system. And it's it's a little bit um, hard to put together as well, especially if it is uh, cross compilers. So so then I started to you know to use the build system and ran into issues and I started fixing them one by one. Uh, you know some small changes, starting with like some comment fixes and understanding the system and and then um, what all changes I kind of did for all this my. POC, I started upstreaming them, and and I remember interacting with Chris Larson, Kuhn, and um, and others who were uh, actively, you know, working on the project at the time, and they were very appreciative of any contributions that you were making that kind of, you know, gave you satisfaction. So uh, that was uh, my start with the project at that point, and as um, uh, and then I just realized that the project was kind of a push model. So, you know, you were contributing and somebody else was taking your patches, making sure they are good and they are kind of uh, okay, and then they will push it. And then eventually, if you submit enough of them, then they kind of, somebody tells, hey, you know, this guy's been contributing a lot. Why don't we kind of give him the push access, right? And then you gain the push access. So we use this push mechanism uh, to maintain the code. And I became a developer and I was pretty new and it, many times, uh, more than once, it so happened that I was on the West Coast and, you know, I would fix my problem and commit it. And then, you know, somebody will wake up in Europe a few hours later and then they will say, who broke this? And then <laughs> they, they will have to go and fix it. And soon, you know, we realized that as I think we were recruiting more and more developers at that point of time, it was becoming evident that, you know, stepping on each other's toes was becoming a, a lot more common. So I think uh, that was very interesting. Uh, but from there, I think we moved to several other other technologies and things. So I think, uh, you know, used Monotone to do the um, source code management. And, and then I think we migrated to Git at that point of time. And I remember that uh, Git was actually being used at Linux kernel and it used pull model. And I think there was uh, heavy discussions around push and pull models. And obviously, you know, there were two divided thought processes at that point. And um, I'm sure that, you know, you also had uh, your exposure to Git and um, and these uh, kind of like source code management technologies. And so uh, what was your uh, take on Git? When did you get uh, started and what was like, you know, your experiences? I would like to know about, uh, you know, it would be interesting to uh, learn about, you know, how your uh, take is on Git at uh, that point of time. Yeah, Git is an amazing tool. And I, I just looked it up the other day. It came out in 2005. 
so about 15 mm-hmm. years ago, and it re- really addressed a, a real need in software development for distributed development, and it, it solves some problems that, that no other tool to date had solved. And yeah, I, I remember those discussions in the open embedded community about uh, which, which version control system to switch to. And we, we started with Monotone, and then I think we were considering one other one. Do you remember which one that was? I, yeah, I think it was uh, Mercurial. Mercurial, yeah. So I remember those debates, and I, I, I definitely chimed in on those. But one thing you have with Git is cheap branching. You know, it's it's very efficient branching model. And I don't think any anything else at the time really had that. And um, after I had used it and, and really used it enough to understand that it, it, it was just clearly the way to go. And I'm, I'm glad it, it did go that way. But one other thing I remember about the early days of, of Git is trying to convince my customers to use it. So everybody was using subversion at the time and thought that was great. And, and <laughs> along comes Git, which is, adds another layer or two of complexity in some ways, you know, because you have your, the whole repository local in your workspace and then you have a remote. So there's an extra step there in pushing changes because you have to commit them and then push them. So that, that was a little bit difficult for, for people who had never used Git or didn't have a lot of mo- motivation to learn it. But to really be effective in open source, um, using Git is just a given now, but 10 or so years ago it wasn't. So yeah, th- those were <laughs> interesting times and it, it, it was just so so um, interesting to watch people after a week or two of complaining about Git, all the problems they're having, you know, suddenly the light bulb would, would go on and suddenly they were they were quiet and, and they loved it, you know. So it's it's an amazing tool and really has contributed to the success of op- of uh, Open Embedded and, and, you know, many other projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, Open Embedded kind of started to use Git and we started seeing um, a lot more activity and a lot more stability, at least from the SCM point of view and you know, a lot more control actually kind of like was exercised by the developers at their workstations. And that kind of resulted, I think, in a lot of uh, uh, increased quality of contributions at that point. So uh, Mm -hmm. I think I'm, yeah, thankful for Git actually to be there. And, um, and I think I'm happy that, you know, we made that switch back then and uh, have been ever since uh, using it. So, yeah. So I think um, essentially what I also saw was um, uh, some developers in Open Embedded were more on the Git front and uh, more than others. So, and that's what got me into Angstrom distribution, so to speak, right? So I wanted to play with Git and Angstrom distribution was already playing with it. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, it is Open Embedded based distribution and let's try it out. And, uh, you know, so that was also interesting outcome from there. And then, you know, at that point of time, Angstrom was one of the, I think, um, popular distributions that was using the open embedded build system. And there were a bunch of others you know, that, was, uh, that were created. Um, I think Proton comes to my mind and, um, uh, and others, Pocky comes to my mind, but Pocky was uh, kind of always a reduced, um, kind of um, 
what Pocky did is it took open embedded and modified it quite heavily. Um, what Angstrom had was it has some genesis from build root. And then at one point of time, it decided to use open embedded uh, straight away. So, you know, it didn't have um, a lot more history with the project other than that let's consume it as it is. So, so that was kind of easy to adopt uh, kind of distribution for me at that point of time. Yeah, so, um, you know, so we had like, uh, it was a monolithic repository. So there were more than one distributions in there. You would see if you can today look at the repository, then you would see there's a minimal distribution. There is a uh, base distribution. There are many others. There is Slug OS and, um, you know, so there were uh, several other incarnations that were actually built in. I think one of the things that started to happen uh, during that time was that people started to uh, report their their test results and build results. And I'm sure you were also participating in that at a certain point of time. And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, um, you know, that kind of initiatives where a open project can kind of uh, collaborate and, uh, you, you know, use the output from various developers who may not be working on the same thing, but basically can benefit each other by sharing information like this. Let's see, are you thinking about the, the testing effort we had at one point where we would all test on different right. targets? And yeah, so that, that was, um, so at one point we started up this testing effort where I think we would tag open embedded and then everybody would would build that tag or something on, yes. you know, for for the particular targets they were working on, and and then report back test results. You know, what image you built and did it did it yes. work? Are there any problems? And and we kept a a spreadsheet of those results. And that that was that was a really fun effort. Uh, it's probably something we should do again some in some form or another. But yeah, there was really a lot of interest in testing at that point and people were contributing and, and, and running these tests. So it really, really contributed a lot of feedback into the project at that time and, and no doubt helped it to become more versatile and, and complete. <laughs> one, one thing Open Embedded offers is, is a very flexible and it can be targeted to a very broad range of of, of uh, applications and image sizes and machines. We talk about the Angstrom distribution and, and that's, that's what I used for years on all of my projects was I started with the Angstrom distribution and then customized it from there. But what, what, what is a distribution? I mean, it is, is open embedded a distribution? I mean, that seems to be a point of confusion. Yeah. I think it's like, Distribution builder, so to speak, right? So essentially, uh, and it's interesting that I was at one of, uh, you know, meetups and the meetups was about um, open source and, you know, embedded Linux and things like that. And, you know, we were talking about uh, open embedded and other things and, and people were saying, all right, so, you know, open embedded is a distribution. And I said, no, it is actually a distribution builder. And, everybody was kind of like blank face. And they said, what do you mean? And uh, so you have to explain that, yes, so, you know, when you talk about, you know, Fedora or Debian or Susie, they are distributions, but then there is infrastructure behind which builds that distribution. 
So Open Embedded is, is a something similar to that infrastructure. What happens is, the, the, I think I realized that the point of confusion is because it's so accessible. It's a Git repository, right? So you go, you check it out, and you are basically che not checking out a, a, a distribution or a application project. You are checking out a infrastructure that will build you a distribution. So, um, so I think that kind of like uh, is a unique space for the project and people kind of, mm, kind of like uh, misunderstand it that uh, it is a distribution, but actually it is not a distribution. It is a distribution builder because distribution, what does distribution consists of is, you know, policies, right? So you have certain policies around packages, which packages you want to, you want to ship you know, um, what architectures you want to support, um, which libc you want to use, which init system you want to use, um, what your licensing policy should be, right? Um, and you can go on. So there are several uh, policies you can impose on your distribution. I just listed a few of the common ones, but there could be more. And, um, and when you combine all these policies, then you get a distribution. And, and then distribution could have all these policies uh, defined based upon its end users and the needs of its users. But for open embedded, it's a open-ended infrastructure. So when you use it, essentially you are building your own distribution. Now you can get templates in there, right? Which could be, uh, nowadays it's called no distro. And hopefully that's telling enough for people to say that what you are checking out is a no distro, uh, right? And you then adapt it to your own needs. So uh, that's my take on, you know, what a distribution is and what a distribution build infrastructure is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, you know, I think over the range of products I've worked on projects and, you know, some of them are tiny headless uh, little edge gateways that, you know, have a, 25 megabyte rootfs image and you know mm -hmm. use muscle for libc and a real minimal busy box type type setup mm -hmm. and then i have other projects where you know we're running on quad core uh, very powerful processors uh, running system d and glibc and you know where we're running more of a full stack so the beauty of open embedded is is i can target we can target any of those those ed those use cases with with one tool and each each prod each project can have a custom distribution um, that, mm -hmm. that matches what it needs rather than you know taking kind of a one size fits all approach so that's that's worked very well in, in my in my experience mm -hmm. and really is is the power of open embedded I guess the other thing that has been really helpful is Open Embedded has a very um, large number of recipes. In other words, it can build about anything, you know. So if you need a component in your in your system, chances are there's a recipe for it already. Th these recipes aren't aren't trivial in many cases because cross compiling is is very hard, especially with auto tools and and C C C plus plus projects and all the dependencies. So. Open Embedded provides a, a tremendous amount of value there in, in capturing that knowledge, how to do this very hard task and 
you know, somebody only has to figure it out once and then the rest of the community can, can use that. Right. Yeah. I think um, this is like um, what you mentioned there is, is a very valuable point and I'd like to like expand a little bit on that. So, um, so auto tools have basically been developed to, to build on a system where this package would run on as well. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they go and they poke at your build system. And by poking, I mean they poke at, so they would run a compiler, right? The native compiler and say, uh, let me find out what's the size of integer on this box or what's the size of W char, right? And uh, the second thing that they do is they will write, actually they will emit a small snippet of code and then they will really execute it on the box and then inspect the output and then make a decision to configure your project. So now what happens is when you're cross compiling, right? Then if you do that, then you are going to get wrong values because you know, as we know that uh, you might be building on a 64-bit build system, but you might be targeting a 32-bit build system. So word length is not same. And uh, NDNS might not be same if you are doing like MIPS, big, big NDN, and you're building on an x86, 64, little NDN. So there are several quirks there that it can silently get it wrong if you kind of try to, you know, uh, build it. So... What has happened is in open embedded, this is a collective knowledge, connect collective information that has gone into cross compiling these kind of packages, as well as what open embedded has done is it has kind of containerized them, where they say, you cannot run a test case on this, on the system, right? So there's a cross compile badness that will be triggered. So there are several uh, tools and helps that you get along with a very deep kind of knowledge that has been collected there in cross-compiling some of these complex packages that, you know, will just work out of box nowadays. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a really good point that you, uh, you, you touched on. And, um, and so I think um, let's talk about the uh, OE build. I think that was the template that uh, you, you put together uh, initially. And then I also joined you on, uh, on developing that because you put it out on, uh, GitHub as one of your projects. So what was behind OE Built and uh, why did you decide to put it on GitHub? You know, as, as, as we're doing projects, we need, we, we need a build system or some way to capture the build configuration. So I started with, with the Angstrom setup script. I guess we call them setup scripts maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and these are basically a make file. I think in the early days it was a make file and then kind of evolved into a bash script. And then there's, there's different things people do, different, use on different uh, setups and projects. So, you know, this, this kind of started as a make file and then it would, um, you know, we would capture all, all, the, all the knowledge required to actually run the build in open embedded using Bitbake. So then at one point I had a, a brief exposure to an Android project I haven't done much Android development, but on this project, they they had a env setup .sh script that you sourced in a bash shell, and then this this env setup uh, file would actually populate your bash shell environment with functions, 
And then these functions could be run anywhere once, once you source the file. And this is a little different than a make file or a traditional bash script where you actually run the make file or you run the script for every, every operation you do. For some reason that just really clicked with me. I'm not sure why, but it just seemed like it was a, as a nice way to do things. So I adopted that kind of that method of doing things. And if you look in the yo distribution, there's an env setup.sh script that's kind of the that's kind of the top level of, of, of the build system, if you will. And one of the nice things about this, this method of doing things is we prefix all, the, all these functions with, uh, with yo, Y-O-E. So then, then to immediately see all your functions, you just type Y-O-E, tab, tab, and boom, you get a whole list of functions that you can run to do various operations. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of where where the OE build uh, repository came from. It's something I put out on GitHub because I started using it for all of my projects and it was just kind of a common starting point, a template, if you mm-hmm. will, you know, to get started. Yeah, I think um, once like Open Embedded um, kind of had a re-architecting done where, you know, we went from a monolithic repository to this layer-based systems, you know, it became more or so important to have a mechanism to put these templates together. And I think um, that's where I think it really shined because, you know, it would basically uh, use uh, a mechanism to set up your workspace. It would provide you functionality to do certain common operations. And I think uh, from my perspective, it was like really a, a top level workspace setup and and a daily driver for somebody who is doing day-to-day distro work. And that is what kind of attracted me towards that. And, uh, and obviously, you know, I was doing Angstrom at that point of time. And uh, this was kind of a, a small step for me uh, in addition to you know, what I was already doing. And it offered me a really good uh, control set of uh, requirements that we had back then. So one of the things we were trying to do at Angstrom was how can we lock the layers, right? And because of this new architecture, now you had um, recipes and metadata uh, coming from various other layers along with a core layer that was called open embedded core. And then the task executor was Bitbake that was already uh, always a separate project. So you have a bit bake and then you have open embedded core that kind of gives you a very minimal system, so to speak, right? And then, then you combine some BSPs together to basically form a project that for a given device that you're working, say if you're working on a Raspberry Pi or BeagleBone, then you know, you'll pull in Meta Raspberry Pi or Meta TI and then uh, add it. Um, and that would basically bring in all the board support package for those. So, uh, and then there were also like software layers, you know, that would give you additional features, things like Qt5 and uh, and others. So, in the end, you had to manage at least you know six to ten layers, right? And uh, and so, what OE Build uh, gave me was you know a a mechanism to manage that, and I could easily add delete layers. And uh, so one thing that I think it was uh, different at that point than others, there were people who were trying to create like similar functionality. And uh, there was this combo tool that uh, the 
Pocky distribution use, and um, and it has always used something of that sort in the past as well, where it fudges together Bitbake and Open Embedded Core and other uh, you know layers that you have to into a single monolithic repository. But one downside is that you know it doesn't share any history, so you have to like kind of create a new history. And I preferred it that way that I could still manage. And to look at the histories of the upstream projects like Open Embedded Core and then everything individually. So what we build was using something called uh, Git submodules. So uh, would you like to talk about like why Git submodules was something that you chose? And uh, because I know there were like things like repo, the Android repo tool and some layer man tools that were home built shell scripts and so on and so forth. And uh, so what was your thought behind that? Yeah, that, that's how you manage multiple Git repos in one project has been a has been a big question, and a you know a lot of there's been a lot of solutions developed to handle this, and the and the Git project has a built-in feature called Git submodules. It's it's very simple. It just simply pulls in a, another repository at a specified hash and. So it's it's incredibly simple, and it's it's meant to be used with kind of a parent repository, then then that then has sub repositories, you know, kind of nested inside of it. And and I guess using Git submodules is is kind of my it was it's kind of an unpopular Git submodules are kind of an un, unpopular thing. They're <laughs> um, a lot of people don't like them, and so I've, I've really questioned this decision over the years. But I, I just kind of think back to, you know, the struggles my customers had even using Git in the first place. From that, kind of came the conviction that this needs to be kept as simple as possible. You know, we're not, you know, the open embedded tooling is 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 very good. It's it it, it is, you know, quite good. There, there doesn't need to be a lot of extra stuff added on top of it to really build a an embedded Linux image. So my desire was to keep it as simple as possible. And I, I believe Git submodules satisfies that need, that requirement. And it, it's also very good from a, from a product standpoint, because when you're developing product software, you have to have everything controlled. You can't have versions of stuff changing on you without you knowing it or specifying that you want it to change that's part of the repeatability you know your build system has to be 100 percent repeatable you load it on machine a it builds the same output as you as when you load it on machine b tomorrow it'll build the exact same output so that's 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 an essential requirement and git submodules satisfies that and then over the years you know the functionality of git submodules has improved and it's it's actually a pretty nice user experience the only real problem is if you make a change on a submodule without checking out a branch first, you can you can push your changes to no branch or whatever they call it, and that can be a little confusing for people. But you know, typically with a with an OE project, you know, you know, we're, we have maybe like Kim said, five to ten uh, layers. Each of those are a Git submodule. So Git submodules handles that number of repositories very well. Now, if you had hundreds of Git, re Git repositories like an Android build would have, then maybe you could justify a more complex tool like Repo. But I, I think for, for the, what, we're, what we're using it for, it's a very good fit. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you there as well. I've come to my 
own terms. And I think I've started to like it, in fact. Um, once kind of you get your head around Git, you know, uh, learning Git submodules is uh, is just a, a very small step. And I think if you um, understand a little bit of quirks, um, then, you know, they, they are really productive. And uh, we have also, I think, provided some of the... Uh, the EO tools actually that kind of takes that pain away. Um, you know, so there are tools like you can add layer, uh, add the repository, delete a repository. So we have like a top level functions uh, in our setup scripts. So I think that basically uh, takes care of a lot of um, the day-to-day -day issues that one might find. And so I think it's pretty usable uh, at that point. One thing I really like about it is that um, um, I could create summary of uh, the project uh, of the mono repo and it tells me where my all layers are in terms of you know their upstream branches so say i modified you know three repositories and it'll tell me exactly what those three repositories contain so uh, mm -hmm. that's really good to know and uh, there are several other uh, goodies that it provides but i think overall the simplicity and the um, the repeat the the repetitive builds are the I uh, think the key points that I think we we keep using it so so that's pretty good so um, I think um, we are uh, uh, perhaps at a top of our hour but I would like you to also give some uh, quick overview of uh, uh, your distribution and uh, uh, I know that you know it came from uh, OE build. And um, what it is now, and you know, in few, what we are looking forward. Yeah, we use we use this OE build template for for quite a few years, and then recently, you know, you and I have been kind of discussing where to go with this, and it kind of occurred to me that you know maybe we should split this out into its own project and its own organization. So we we decided to do that. We came up with the name Yo. It's basically a combination of the Y and Yocto and the OE and Open Embedded to form Yo. And it's also the name of a female sheep, I think, which is which is kind of neat. And so that's that's now its own organization on GitHub. Mm -hmm. So the I guess the desire going forward is just simply to be more of an independent open source organization that, that anybody can participate in and, and help make it usable as a simple template for using open embedded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, that's, uh, that's a really good start. And I think what uh, you'll also see is um, that all the uh, layers that uh, your distribution is supporting are actually mirrored onto the same organization as well. And uh, we use this, the same layers from the same GitHub projects into your distribution. So uh, that kind of gives us um, some level of control and um, as well as some redundancy. Um, if say upstream layer goes away or, you know, gets rewritten to or something, the project can still go on. This also gives us actually a lot more flexibility to do uh, continuous integration and um, create branches, um, which we are doing. So um, we have our own CI system so I think looking forward, um, what we think is that you can basically be that deployment platform that uh, people want uh, Open Embedded to uh, be. And uh, it could be basically 
serving as a deployable from day one uh, project for uh, the end users. So uh, what are some of the uh, future uh, milestones that you think we should uh, work towards? I guess some of the things that, that come to mind for me are just broader platform support. We, we already support quite a few, but you know, as we talked about testing earlier, I would really like to get back into testing more platforms on a routine basis. Mm-hmm. I guess we've discussed feeds. I think it would be kind of neat to have a, you know, one configuration or, or so and maybe generate binary feeds for, for people mm-hmm. so they could quickly install packages, you know, on a, like a Raspberry Pi or something. It would be more like a, a Debian type experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be mainly just allow people to quickly evaluate and use the, use the distribution. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of things. We, we have a software updater in Yo right now, and, and we're looking at inter- integrating some other software update technologies. So there, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of opportunity and, and a lot of, lot of uh, exciting things coming on. And, and I guess, you know, in a summary, we, we picture Yo, uh, the Yo distribution as, as a real thin wrapper, you know, we, we really try hard to not add a lot of complexity. And that's one of the reasons that, that uh, a shell script was chosen kind of for the top level automation is that it's really simple to read because it's just commands, just shell commands, th- same things you would type if you wanted to type it out manually. Mm-hmm. So it serves as good documentation and it doesn't, doesn't hide anything. Mm-hmm. And it's also very easy for you to add your uh, additional ENV setup scripts mm-hmm. that, that might wrap the ENV setup script where, where you would put your own project automation in it. So it's, it's easily extensible. Uh, there's, there's no magic. It just kind of helps, helps you mm-hmm. use what's, what the power of open embedded and what's already there. Right. Yeah. I think uh, that's really a, a good point there. Um, I remember once, um, you know, I was kind of, writing SD card and I DD directly into it, thinking that I DD into the right device. Um, but it so happened that, uh, you know, it was uh, system has rebooted and I found that UDAV has decided to mount it in a different order. And I ended up writing to one of, <laughs> one yeah, I of hate my, when that happens. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so what, you know, uh, what these, kind of commands give us is actually really uh, that abstraction that takes these kind of worries out of your mind mm-hmm. and uh, lets you concentrate on, you know, the, the real work at hand. And I really appreciate that because, you know, every time we are kind of distracted into these activities in our focus on the problem is not as deep as it should be. And, uh, you know, many times uh, you would be working on like a very difficult problem and then suddenly you know you have fixed it you think and then you built your image and you want to flash it and suddenly if something goes wrong because of all these tools really come handy in that regard that you can like just execute them and they do their work so uh, I find that uh, more and more that I'm immersed in the problem rather than the build system so you know that's a really uh, really helpful um, activity I believe and I think we'll keep making it better and simpler. So I think, uh, as you rightly mentioned, that uh, EO is all about simplicity and, um, and determinism. So we, um, we strive towards making 
it easy for people to consume open embedded based um, products and develop their own. And at the same time, we are not shy of using new technologies either, uh, either. So I would just like to mention that we support like new, you know, architectures like RISC-V. We do regular testing on, you know, KMU for RISC-V and also the Freedom Board from Sci-Fi. And we have, uh, we are kind of using Clang at certain point as well as a system compiler for testing a uh, few images. So, and uh, we make sure that if you want to use Clang with open with uh, open embedded, then Yo has simple switch uh, in our templates to you know, set tool chain and things like that. So, uh, so I think uh, that's uh, basically. I'm very excited about uh, the project, and I think uh, it's just started. I think, and uh, uh, we have more to go. And uh, now that Yocto has also announced that 3.1 will be a long-term supported release. We do have uh, plans to support our uh, 3.1 based uh, uh, your release uh, for that long as well. And I think our focus will be there to make it uh, even better for, uh, for deploying and uh, addressing more and more uh, end user scenarios from deployment perspective. So, so I think we want to position it into um, uh, people who are deploying real products and address their issues in terms of workflow or otherwise. So um, I think uh, that's been our focus on this distribution. And I think uh, what I've seen is that it, it basically also helps the core developers in the end as well, but uh, it may not be uh, that it, their focus might not be exactly on the things that we consider in your so. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent summary. And, and really, um, we're definitely interested in in what what all of all of you think and ideas or contributions are welcome. So we we definitely look look forward to engaging with with the community and others in these efforts, and we can all benefit. All right. So I think um, thank you very much for this uh, nice discussion today, uh, Cliff. And I really enjoyed uh, uh, you know talking about uh, way back when we started and what brought us to creating the Yo distribution. And um, I hope we will have uh, a lot more follow-up, interesting dis discussions around uh, various uh, uh, technologies and processes uh, in and around Yo distribution, but not limited to just Yo distribution. Uh, we'll also cover as we see fit and interests us. So uh, thank you. And um, so any last words, Cliff, you have for our uh, listeners today? No, no, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to the next one. All right, thank you, and uh, God bless. Yep. Yeah.